Welcome to In the Gutter, a podcast that is all comics, all bangers, all the time, with story expert Lonnie Diane Rich and superhero scholar Joshua Unruh. One of the hosts has read almost no superhero comics, and the other has read almost all of them. We'll let you sort out which is which. And now, In the Gutter. All right, so I just went on this completely ridiculous road trip. Um... A couple of weeks ago, like I gave everybody homework for the year of writing magically workshop where I was like, think about the things that, you know, boost your creativity and the things that drain you and go ahead and adjust your life accordingly. And I mean, the big focus was on like, you know, adjusting the things that are draining, you know, and so I went through and I did that. And then I thought, you know. Alisa, who, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Alisa Quitney, who's my co-host on Endless, the Sandman podcast, um, was interviewing uh, Neil Gaiman at the Woodstock Book Fest in Woodstock, New York, which is right where I'm from. Like, I grew up there. So, um, or in that area anyway. And so I decided, all right, you know, road trips are excellent for my creativity and for, like, getting the book going and all of this kind of stuff. Um, I am going to drive from Colorado to New York and back. Sure. Um, And this, like, the thing is, like, along the way, like, you know, Kelly Jones lives in Missouri, so I stopped over in Missouri and hung out with her for a little bit, went and picked up my kid in Columbus. There are all these stops, like, very, like, equally distant along the way where I could just stop in Columbus, picked up my kid, brought my kid to the town where I grew up and was wandering through this town, like showing them all the places, telling them all the stories, everything. And um, going to the pizza place where I had my first date, which literally has not changed to the point where the guy behind the counter was the same dude. Same dude. So that was totally weird. Um, But we went, we stayed on this farm that was like right around the corner from where I grew up. And I used to love that farm. And they had a record player there. Now, my kid hadn't been born in the 90s, right? Was like, I don't even know what is this? What is this record player? What is this thing? You know, and so... um, It's like a laser disc minus the laser. And you know what? I just dated myself with laser disc also. Right, for that 15 (laughs) minutes in like 1996 when laser discs were a thing, right? Like technology has moved so fast. But, you know, when we were kids, when we were little, like record, that was what you had. Like you had record players, you could set tapes, you know? And so so they were really excited about it. So we ended up going to this bookstore in Rhinebeck, New York. We picked up uh, Leonard Cohen Greatest Hits original (laughs) vinyl. And we went back to the place and that night and we sat down with this record player. Now, this record player is like super cheap and clearly there for decoration as they did not (laughs) actually have any vinyl in the place where we were staying. Right, right. But we had this experience where I was explaining to them like, okay, so this is how a record player works and this is what you do. And oh, that sound, that is the record scratch that you hear all the time and had absolutely no context for. Like, I was like, this is how it works yada yada oh yeah Um, pop hiss baby pop hiss oh my goodness and at one point the the record needle was like skimming the surface and i was like oh that's when you tape a nickel to the top that's right of the needle right to put a little extra weight down all like we were going through this whole thing it was such a wonderful experience and then i left that because i don't have a record player i'm never going to use this album right but i left it there because i'm like people who stay here should have the opportunity to listen to Leonard Cohen in the original vinyl. But what a it vibe was check. Such just, an experience. That you just leave behind like, yeah, 
Um, the universal experience of people who stay in this barn <laughs> should be Leonard Cohen's greatest hits. I'm not saying oh, whether you're right or wrong. I'm just no. saying what the boldness, the audacity of this decision that you're just like, I've oh, taken yeah. it into my hands. Deal with it, friends. Uh, it's absolute fucking poetry. Like, here's the thing. I am not going to argue that Leonard Cohen is a great singer. Like, I think that covers of his stuff usually end up better than that's, like no, his, that seems wise. His original. Yes. But he is a goddamn poet. There is no, a crack yeah. in everything. That's how the light gets in. Save my soul, Leonard Cohen. That was amazing. So I like it was such a great experience. It was so much fun. And now there's this album in this little barn out on a farm. And when people come to stay there in the Airbnb, that's going to be like my little contribution. Also, we left my kid's coat there. So if there's ever a <laughs> very small person who needs a coat who stays there, then uh, then they can have my kid's coat. Legacy. Legacy. I'm you, it's, all, yes. it's all about leaving a piece of yourself behind the way that we do in these podcasts. How do you like that segue? That's right. Uh, take only <laughs> pictures and leave only footprints and also Leonard Cohen albums. <laughs> As you venture into the mountains to steal a cosmic cube from your best friend turned worst enemy, obviously. Oh my goodness. Well, I think that that should slide us right into the summary really well. Jack, roll the summary music. In Captain America Winter Soldier number 14, we pick up where we left off with the Winter Soldier taking a shot at Falcon's head. But when he looks through the scope to survey the damage, all he sees is a broken tree branch. He moves the scope over to Cap and sees the shield flying at him just before he gets cracked in the head with it. Bucky escapes into the compound with the cosmic cube and Cap goes in chase after him while Falcon deals with the guys outside. Sharon calls through Cap's comms and says she's a couple minutes out and that there are underground tunnels. He needs to stop the Winter Soldier from getting away with the cube. Cap goes after the Winter Soldier and they fight. Cap tries to remind the Winter Soldier who he really is, but the Winter Soldier refuses to see it. Cap finally says, fine, if you don't remember who you are, then kill me. The Winter Soldier takes aim and fires, but Cap throws his shield, blocks the shot, and knocks the pack off the Winter Soldier's back. The Cosmic Cube tumbles to the ground, and so does the Winter Soldier, as the memories flood back in. Sharon shows up, but Cap tells her to hold her fire. The man who killed Tapper isn't in there anymore. In a moment of fury and anguish, Bucky grabs the cube and says that all those people are dead for this damn thing, and he crushes it in his hand. In a blinding flash of blue light, the cube is destroyed and Bucky is gone. Cap doesn't know where Bucky is, but he knows he's not dead. He's a survivor. We see Bucky walking through Camp Lehigh at night, remembering the moment he first met Cap, the moment when he was so happy to greet a future that would turn out so bleak. He falls to his knees in the dark and says, you're a fool. In Akota, we're back with Lucan, who is staring out the window as the taunting voice in his head, well, taunts. We see him looking at the reflection of the voice telling him he was weak to get rid of the cube. And it's Red Skull. Because of course it is. Oh my God, Joshua, here we are. The last issue in this arc, which we started at the beginning of season one of In the Gutter, and now are closing season two of In the Gutter with it. Um, what do you think of this issue? I mean, it's a big finale that feels suitably big, right? I mean, we yeah. got Cap's old best partner, his new best partner, the soldier's moment of hesitation, but he still pulls the trigger, the near miss. 
Oh, and um, I don't know about my personal favorite, but definitely a thing that took me almost as much uh, by surprise the first time I read it. Uh, The revelation that the skull isn't so much back as the bastard never left. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) You know, I love that. In that moment and in the first issue, I think it was the first issue, right? Where where Red Skull is set up as the villain and then taken Mm -hmm. out entirely. Um, And so in that moment, I was like, wow, what a bold move to kill your antagonist and then slide somebody (laughs) else into that space and yada, yada, yada. And... Of course, of course it was him. I, I We're going to talk about that a little bit, about the predictability thing, but like, I don't even care. It was predictable. I still missed it. It was an awesome reveal. And I yeah. love the, the call back to the reflections. I think it was great. I mean, we've got Bucky's back, you know, which sets us up for more great stories in the future as he processes what he's done. Um, and that means we'll probably get a meaningful reunion eventually, which of course I'm very much looking forward to. Um, the reveal of Lucan's inner tormentor is the Red Skull. Again, this huge moment that like you should have seen coming every time I saw this disembodied voice talking to Lucan <laughs> the fact that I didn't think it, I didn't it didn't even occur to me that it was a red skull even though I think that that was pretty damn obvious but I'm, I'm glad Brubaker got it past me but I think that even if you're somebody that didn't that saw that coming a million miles away it was still really beautifully executed oh yeah absolutely I, I mean We've actually had something like the experience of the original readers in a, in a mm-hmm. way. Like we've read each set of issues more quickly, but you know, fifteen issues—that's a year and a third, and that was literally a year and a third of time between <laughs> the rug getting yanked out from under us and this reveal. Um, and while yeah, Lucan's inner voice was there off and on. Actually, yeah. it was there, I mean, almost every almost every time we saw him in one way or another. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he was used so sparingly that it never hung a lampshade on it. I mean, it, you know, like he never went... Lucan also never went away, really, but also would just bubble up now and then. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, and we'll talk some more about this, but like throws light backwards on uh, just who it was that gave Cap the file. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. like it really, there is a moment where you're like, oh, that changes a bunch of stuff subtly. Right. You know. It is, it's such a neat um, device to use. And it was, it was so nicely done. And there's so much other stuff going on. Like you're so focused Mm -hmm. on Bucky. And the thing is, is that even when Lucan wasn't around, like Bucky was the influence of the antagonist. You don't need your antagonist to be physically present, just the influence of the antagonist and what's going on. And Bucky was very much that influence. I mean, back through, through the generations, through Karpov, through everything. It was all of these antagonists dead and alive still tormenting cap you know um so i think that that was just beautifully done i think that um that all of this uh this is a really great finale with a nice setup for for future um stories to be told and oh, yeah, i mean absolutely. what what more can you ask for no it's true and i i mean the the jumping off of uh we're going to shift if you kept reading after uh mm-hmm. this we're going to shift to the crossbones and sin stuff for yeah. a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like that is a B plot that was simmering along. That's going to be the A plot. Now Lucan's going to have a bit of a backseat, but never go away mm-hmm. because that's still floating around. But his red right hand is gone. What does that mean? Yeah. There's just a yeah. million things to do from here. Um, 
Yeah, and which comes back to just me being very impressed with uh, serialized storytelling done well. Because, again, yeah. modern superhero comics, not always, they nod. A lot of nodding at serialization yeah. without really committing. Uh, but obviously, this just goes for it with an A, a B, a C, and a D plot. And they all just kind of shift around over the course yeah. of years. And this was our first, you know, year and a bit of it. Mm, good stuff. It is absolutely excellent. I loved it. All right. So I have to say, like, you know, we've had a lot of covers and we've had mixed reactions to some. Some of them were like, yeah, you know, it's like your standard, you know, superhero shot. Some of them were really interesting. I cannot even tell you how much I love the, the when we finished, I finished reading the the last issue. I flipped ahead just a little bit because I try uh -huh. not to spoil myself also because I will forget which details and which <laughs> issue and then screw it up and bring in the wrong thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like I, I skipped ahead just enough to see the cover and to have that old style 1940s cover. And mm -hmm. then you've got modern Cap and Bucky facing off over the images of themselves. Themselves. They're standing in this white limbo, like there's nothing grounding any of this. This is just this experience for them. Um, and superimposed over their old selves, you know, mm -hmm. their previous versions of themselves, which are unrecognizable to who they both are now. And when you look at those old selves and you think, oh, my God, the shit you are going to go through, you know, looking at those innocent <laughs> little, you know, faces that are just like, we're going to punch some Nazis, you know, um, it's just it's such a beautiful contrast. I love this cover. I think it's my favorite in the run. It's really great. Um, and you actually pointed something out that I hadn't made a connection to um, mm -hmm. that now has me kind of reevaluating lots of stuff. You pointed out this like slow fade into yeah. featureless white, this limbo, mm -hmm. this unknown. So up top we have the past uh, in the middle. We have the present and the future is just like hell if I know. Right, like right. everything's and they're falling be downward into yeah. it. It kind of feels like gravity is pulling them down into this space and who knows what defines that space. And there's like a cracked mirror thing going on because the uh, Cap is on the right and Bucky's on the left in the past. Cap is on the left and Winter Soldier's yeah. on the right in the in the present. And then who the hell knows after that? It's yeah, it's uh, we've seen this juxtaposition of like um, original classic style yeah. art with Bucky before. And it works just as beautifully bringing Captain America into this and sort of dramatizing their whole relationship mm -hmm. with that contrast. Really great. Really great stuff on yeah. this cover. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely fabulous. Um, but yeah, okay, so so we're going to get started. We're going to be talking about a lot of stuff. There's a lot of really deep themes going on in here. But you mentioned earlier that, you know, that the, the Red Skull influence on Lucan reframes who gave Cap the file. Yeah. And so, I mean, we have the moment where Lucan is frantically searching for the file, right? Are we so so? Are we thinking that Red Skull gave him the file? That's what I've been thinking for Used a while. Used Lucan to give him the file. Oh, uh -huh. so it was. Is that never answered? Is that just a theory? Do we ever get a solid answer on that? You know, now that you say that, because I have read this a couple times, but not super recently. I'm not sure that yeah. that's ever made explicit. I really am not yeah. sure. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty on the label because uh, mm -hmm. the the now now that you know the Red Skull's right. in there. Um, 
And part of the reason I think it's on the label is Brubaker is really good at quietly upping the stakes. Like Lucan has had an awful voice in his head and has been a little unstable and made some poor decisions, but we are not given any kind of in- indication that Skull has been taking over, at least that Lucan can tell. But here we have this moment that Lucan does not recall, and this is the Skull gets to fuck with the person he's imprisoned within and his greatest enemy with the same move, you know, with taking over just long enough or doing it when Lucan's paying attention to something else. I don't know, you know, exactly how this two minds in one body in a cosmic cube thing works, but yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty clear, at least to me, Red Skull did it and he did it because it shits in Lucan cereal and caps at the same time. (laughs) And it just speaks to that efficiency of villainy, right? You know? Why Whatever else we can say about Nazis. You can torment five, right? Yes. Yes. Very efficient. Very good files. And that means he's going to be like, well, how can I? I'm not doing a German accent. I refuse to. Okay, but, no. uh, <laughs> but that answers the question. What's the maximum fuckery I can get up to in one deft maneuver? And there it is. I love so. it. I love it. I love it. So let's talk a bit about Red Skull. I mean, mm-hmm. Red Skull is a presence in the beginning, clearly a presence all throughout. But maybe we don't really know how much of a presence he is until this last, yes. you know, reflection at the end. And the faces reflected over each other, the the Red Skull reflecting back through the glass, beautifully calls back to that original um, artwork from the first issue of Cap yes. and Red Skull, right? Um, so let's, let's have a little chat about Red Skull. What do you want to say? about red skull well i i just wanted to to address some things like the file and like at the very beginning in our first season i said pay attention to this reflection it's not going to be constant but when it comes back it's gonna be big and you know and here it is um and the idea that it never occurred to many of us that the evil voice in Lucan's head could be anything other than Lucan, right? Like maybe Mm -hmm. the cosmic cube is dragging him, you know, into a darker place and kind of personifying those dark thoughts. Maybe that's what it is, but it's not like he's a good dude. Clearly he has dark thoughts, you know? And then at the end to go, Oh shit, they are the darkest thoughts. And, and in fact, Lucan, it kind of, again, casts that light backwards. Like Lucan has been struggling. Clearly Lucan knows and has known most of the time that it was Red Skull and just somewhere between refused to deal with it and disassociated. I mean, I think it's important that we, the readers, never saw him dealing with it. We saw him Mm -hmm. ignoring the voice or telling it to shut up, but but it was like he was trying to deprive it of light and air and maybe it would go away, and clearly that ain't working out. It just, it really is, it changes everything that happened before subtly you know, but doesn't compl- it's not sort of a, a, a real um, sort of sixth sense or whatever attempt at a twist. It's a much more subtle, like ripples backwards, like, oh, damn, that thing is, oh, damn, that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, going forward, we know Lucan is a principled villain, so it's not going to be easy on him having what would he refer to him only as sadist and fascist the entire time. <laughs> not a comfortable space. You know, for Lucan. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, Lucan dipped his toe in that pool. Uh, you know, No, there's both the monkey's paw where he is. Yeah. of the cosmic mm-hmm. cube, 
right? Yeah. Which is what did it to both of them. They are both, right. what, what, you know, Red Skull's like, you're lucky that I'm not the only one in here if there had been any more juice in that cube. And Lucan's yeah. like, oh, no, buddy. We're now stuck with each other. We are each other's prison, actually. Exactly. You know? <laughs> um, like, it's, yeah, it's, uh, so you've really got this combination of the monkey's paw of the cosmic cube with this idea that superhero comics really like to play with this Nietzsche quote of when you stare into the abyss, the abyss also stares back into you, which is kind of interesting with Lucan because he's clearly an abyss, <laughs> but we are led to believe that the Red Skull is a worse abyss, you know, and they're staring into one another. Amazing. Okay, so one of the things, too, um, I, I've definitely talked about this a lot uh, in Still Pretty, you know, my Buffy podcast, um, because it, it, within the world of Buffy, guns are typically um, dismissed, um, reviled, uh, usually not used. When they are used, um, it is always a disaster. And so my read on that has always been about the essential unearned power mm -hmm. of a gun that like all you have to be able to do to suddenly increase your power dramatically is pick up a gun. Yes. And I mean, even if you're not good with it, if you're not skilled with it, like if you pick up something that has a lot of power, that machine gun or something like that, you can still do an incredible amount of damage and instill mm -hmm. an incredible amount of fear and terror. Um, so I, I, guns as a representative of unearned power, I think is really interesting. And here, you know, in, in the Buffy universe where power is, um, you know, like she's a chosen one. So she just mm -hmm. kind of got the power, but also she develops it. She works with it. She trains. She uses it responsibly. She thinks about the ethics of how she uses it and when she uses it. She chooses those moments really carefully. That is an earned power. Um, I think that with superheroes too, some of them just get hit by gamma rays and then turn into big green hulks like shit happens, right? You know, <laughs> if you're true. a scientist yeah. that apparently in the in the universe is just a thing that happens. But once you get that power though, you know, I mean, good God, like we always come back to Peter Parker with great power comes great responsibility right, yeah. is something that I think is deeply woven into like superhero storytelling that, that whether or not a character wanted this power or pursued this power or whatever, once they have it, they are responsible for it and they're responsible for how they use it, right? Um, so here we have um, a situation where we have like all of these, you know, bad guys with guns, right? right but yeah. the heroes don't. Now, S.H.I.E.L.D. will come in guns a-blazing. Well, but you again, said heroes. Where, so. Exactly. I was going to say, where <laughs> S.H.I.E.L.D. falls on the hero-villain spectrum is definitely something that is up for debate. And also, I think, kind of interesting when you are thinking about S.H.I.E.L.D. and how many questions we have about mm -hmm. the ethical you know, function of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, but ethics, when you are given superpowers, I think are, are really super important. So villains are using guns. Villains are shooting, you know, the Winter Soldiers shooting with a gun, yes. right? Yeah. Our heroes do not. Cap has the, the shield, which he uses to like throw out, knock people down. You know, I always come back though like to that that from a couple of issues ago that scene on the bridge where the zombie you know people were coming and oh, he yeah. throws that shield and beheads a bitch like yes. that was that is the most you know visceral violence i've seen come from usually 
it's just a hubcap that's knocking people down like and, right you know, yeah just, and like just um tracking bullets and all that kind of stuff um but you know like falcon is flying at people he's punching with his fist they have guns and he is beating the shit out of them with his fists and being okay cap is throwing a shield at people and deflecting the bullets i find that kind of interesting and as i don't know as much about superheroes like is this a theory that holds any water about the the earned and unearned power and where guns fall on that spectrum do you think that that's something they're deliberately doing oh i I think that's a hundred percent been a thing Mm -hmm. that superheroes are doing and then surpassing so so guns Mm -hmm. fit this really interesting space where for any average you know hood who just picks up a gun now they're more dangerous than the guy who just and and i'm going way back i'm gonna uh, for right. superhero stuff we're gonna start with uh 1939 1940 honestly mm-hmm. um both because superheroes like that's where the root is and they never entirely mm-hmm. outgrow where they started right but i also yes. think marvel does things a little differently and then this story is doing things a little differently so there's a few things going on um so if you go all the way back, it's 1930, it's 1940, uh, hoods, pick up a gun. Now they're more dangerous than the guy with the blackjack or the brass knuckles or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, our superheroes, however, cannot have to care about guns. Like beating yeah. people who have guns has to be the you are this tall to ride for superheroes. Right. If you can't handle one <laughs> random dude with a gun, hang up your tights. These were like 12 dudes with machine guns, though. And Falcon oh. was just like, yeah, come at me. You know? Yes, yes, because that's it's like that's how it that's how it has to be. So again, uh, yeah. our first two superheroes, uh, Superman and Batman. Um, one of the two creators of Superman lost his father to gun violence, uh, oh, and because uh, they owned a pawn shop and they were robbed, and he was shot and died in broad oh. daylight. It is not surprising to me that yeah. the hero that these two young men created together at a very uncertain time for Jewish young men in this, mm-hmm. uh, in this country at a very uncertain time for middle and lower class or, you know, poor people. Uh, yeah. They lost their livelihood the day that dad got shot in the poncho. I, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising to me that the hero, these two young men come up with uh, is entirely bulletproof, like right yes. from jump. Right. Um, and then our second hero now, ha- Batman has a, a few stories where mm-hmm. at the very beginning where he is a gun toting vigilante because they were barely not ripping off the shadow who is a gun toting uh-huh. vigilante, but very quickly, very quickly, the vow to not use guns is like a secondary vow to warring on mm-hmm. crime. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that you and I, in an episode of, uh, of listen up a holes, I talked about how much I really appreciate the, opening credits to Batman the Animated Series because you Mm -hmm. get everything you need to know about Batman with amazing orchestral music going on. And one of the things is two guys pull guns on him and he hits them with boomerangs and then knocks them out. And the point being, he's better than a gun, right? Mm -hmm. Like no gun brings you to the level of Batman. So there's both an element of unearned power because we have to Mm -hmm. deal with these people with guns. But it's also a... You must be this tall. A guy with a gun cannot be too much trouble for you, right? It just can't. Right. Mm-hmm. You see mm-hmm. this in Captain America, actually. If you look at the costume, the kind of classic costume, he is a knight, swashbuckler, gloves and boots. He's got the shield. He's a knight who has no offensive weaponry. He can throw mm-hmm. the shield, don't get me wrong, but that came along a little later, actually. The, the yeah. original imagery is a knight who is all protect, 
no attack. You know, very much a view we wanted to have of ourselves as Americans in America and the American military in the 40s. Mm. Uh, Now, Marvel, though, is kind of interesting because guys with guns, um, first of all, they start in the same place that DC starts, right? Uh, Peter Parker loses his uncle to gun violence. Um, Mm -hmm. Cap's in a war, which is a lot of guns, but it's still guns. He mostly spends his time fighting things more serious than guns. Mm But as we move forward in time, right, especially we get into the 70s and 80s, we start getting these introductions of guys like the Punisher who are now super people with guns, sort of. And then the 90s becomes a very militarized time when a lot of people's powers were, but I have guns and a lot of them. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, so and that took hold more in Marvel than it did in DC. And then last of all these things, you have. The Winter Soldier story, which is trying to be more grounded while, you know, a more grounded superhero story. So it has to be important and impactful when S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up, even though they are, strictly speaking, just a bunch of well, well informed people with guns, you know. Mm -hmm. But what do we see from our heroes? Our heroes still stay in that kind of traditional, we don't use guns. You know, because uh, that's what bad guys do. It's really fascinating in this story specifically that you have the the root of this, which is we don't use guns. That's what bad guys do. At the yeah. same time that Captain America and Sam are running around, Cap and Falcon are running around with, a, you know, a bunch of people who are carrying guns. It's mm-hmm. not what this story is about. So they don't really like look super closely at it. But I really love that I've imprinted enough on you that you're thinking <laughs> about that that contrast. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, you know, I've I've been thinking about that in stories um, a lot, especially given the the real serious problems that we have in this country with yeah. violence. Um, and the fact that the bad guys in comics, for the most part, you know, of course, there are exceptions. It's been 80 years of comic book storytelling. Right. They're going Exception to, to every rule. Every rule. Exactly. But mostly it's heroes, heroes, real heroes don't use guns. Yeah. Bad guys use guns. And that um, that consistency in that presentation, you know, of that dichotomy is something that I would hope would, would absorb more um, in, in some areas of our culture. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but yeah, like the. Um, the unearned power that comes with picking up a gun and how you just can't have any respect for that. You yeah. know, like there are people out there who like, you know, will know how to use a gun, who are very, very careful with them, who respect what they do and respect the power that they have. And like, you know, people who don't shoot other people with guns, people who feed their family because they shoot something with a gun, fine. Sure. Um, you know, like I am, I'm, but at the same time, like the, the problem that we have, um, oftentimes you can find like, you know, when I talk about the stories in our culture, the stories in our culture reflect us back at us. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the thing that superhero comics try to do is reflect the best of us back at us. Very often. And yes. what I find interesting is that the best of us does not use guns. Yeah, they they earn their power. Um, and I've always kind of I really kind of liked and respected that in superhero storytelling. And even though that's not the point of this and that's not what they meant to do and that's not what this is about at all, it's still there. And that's when yeah. you know that there is that part of us that knows like within us, within our culture, part of us knows, you know, that, yeah. that this is this is not what heroes do. Um, 
So I find that kind of interesting. Um, in the storytelling, you know, this moment, okay, so this moment happens, right, where it's Red Skull staring back at Lucan. And uh-huh. I'm like, oh, oh, God. Like, I mean, <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't even think about it. I was like, duh, you know. And so in the moment, I was like, okay, I missed it. Fine. It, that is completely a predictable outcome. Like anybody who sat and thought about it for even a minute and who had who had read maybe the first set of comics a little bit, you know, like with, with less of an interstitial than maybe I did. But still, like, oh, my God, of course it's going to be. Of course it's going to be Red Skull in the Cosmic Cube. That got passed down. Yes, of course the voice is going to be Red Skull, right? Um, and then I was like, well, okay, fine. Like I didn't see it. I think probably most readers probably did have that suspicion. Uh, especially savvy comic book readers probably would have mm-hmm. had that suspicion yeah. given the way everything was laid out. Um, but then, like, you know, I was thinking about predictability um, as a criticism in storytelling and how I think predictability is like the worst criticism you can make in storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. It has nothing to do with anything. So, like, I'm not the kind of person who will ever say, well, that was predictable, like, as a criticism. This was predictable. It was absolutely laid out there. I didn't see it. So, for me, it was a twist. But I think even if it wasn't a twist, even if you knew that was coming, um, this would still be an incredibly enjoyable and, and like, satisfying moment in the storytelling. And the thing is that, like, a really good twist can be a great pleasure in storytelling to not see that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it is one it is one of a million pleasures like you know we knew how all of this was going to work out right we knew that cap was gonna not kill bucky we knew that cap was gonna you know give bucky himself back like we knew all of this was gonna happen it's still destroying to see it happen when he falls to his knees and you see all the memories behind him like Uh, It's devastating, you know, Um, and the fact that we knew that that was going to happen doesn't make that any less devastating. Um, Living through these moments with these characters is the point of fiction. And this is why, like, you know, people are always talking about, oh, that was predictable, blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is, like, if you read the same story more than once because you love it, then its predictability is not the reason why you go there. Like, you go there for the experience of that story. And once you know what happens, if that's the only thing that that story has to offer, you'll never go back to it again. But this is something that I could see going back to over and over and over again, regardless of whether you know Mm -hmm. what's going to happen or not. So basically, I'm just making my standard argument that knowing what's going to happen, knowing that Cap is going to save Bucky, no matter how much we saw him flailing with what to do, what to do, what to do before, um, you knew what Cap was going to do. You knew how this was going to end. And yet it's still still wonderfully executed and completely emotionally devastating, which is what you want. Exactly. Yes. And I actually think there's sort of two different types of predictability. And I think that um, the Red Skull reveal is the much more difficult one to pull off, which is the one where in retrospect, this was obvious, but it wasn't actually obvious all along. In retrospect, Mm -hmm. it is. You're like, oh, Yeah. yeah. I mean, no spotlight was shown on it but i certainly had all the pieces you know i could have made this guess reasonably but now that it's revealed of course it was and the Mm. other one is well i saw the end coming the whole time and as you say that's not that's all most of the time that's just like good writing like if i know what's going to happen that means this person understands how stories are put together 
you know. Exactly. And where the value in the story is, which yes. is not in the twist, you know. So, I mean, having these two things right side by side, that you know what Cap is going to do, and yet it still devastates you. And that looking back, you're like, oh, of course it was Red Skull. Right. Yeah. That's I think yeah. that to me is like one of the best ones. I love when a writer slides one past me like that and is like, <laughs> here are all of the pieces. But they do this sleight of hand so yeah. that you're looking somewhere else at that moment and you're not really putting all of that together. I mean, that's just genius. That's beautifully done. It's uh, it absolutely is. And it, mm-hmm. it, it brings this brings me to a conversation I literally had this week. I, I was talking with a friend of mine. I was a little disappointed in them, honestly, that they were complaining <laughs> Yeah, one of the one of the Star Wars shows that used characters who were going to be important in stories that were the future of the the series that, you yeah. know, we did a new series, but there is a future in the fiction we know they're going to be in. Right. And this friend of mine was like, there's no stakes because of that. And I was like, that's ridiculous. That's not how this works. Right. Like mm-hmm. you're already in a heavily genre space. And most of the time. In the heavily genre spaces, like superheroes, like space opera, you already know, as you're talking about, we knew what was going to happen broadly. We -hmm. had no idea how it was going to happen. That's the interesting bit. Like, how does the win happen? We know they're going to win. How many times do you say in JLA? Well, JLA is on the cover. So I'm reasonably certain (laughs) they're going to come out on top. Yeah. It's the how. Not the point. Right? It's the the how. And mm-hmm. uh, and if you ever get w- what might feel like a reasonable uh, uh, complaint about predictability, it's probably that the how wasn't that clever either, yeah. right? Like it's mm-hmm. the um, the road that got us to the destination we knew was not scenic enough, as opposed to okay. there was a problem with the destination. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so li- like literally this week, that's what I've been arguing already is that like, no, man, come on, just because you don't think that they're going to die that was seriously all of the all, the only stakes you can think of. That's the saddest thing in the world. You know, right, there are right. way worse stakes, way well, deeper things know, at play. Culturally, I think we are trained by this. I mean, parade of content, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. there is so we have more content available to us. In more forms and in more ways now than ever before in human history. I mean, content is is huge, you know, and people are churning through it at such a rate that I think that they are simply looking for that one thing like that. I didn't see that coming, you know, that yeah. I didn't know that this was going to happen. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it is about the how it is about how you get there. It is about like what happens in those in those moments and how those moments evolve. Um, and we don't recognize that that is why we're here, not necessarily mm-hmm. for how it's all going to end. It's the same idea that, um, that, you know, something only matters if it lasts forever, you know, like yeah. the, the yeah. fact that we are all, you know, here on a rock that eventually is going to get swallowed by the sun and no evidence that we ever existed will ever, you know, last or whatever. But for some reason, we're all chasing this, this immortality of, you know, um, work that people will remember or like, you know, whatever. But it's really not about that. Like everything is about the now. This is the most important moment. And we are Mm -hmm. always so distracted by looking to whatever is going to happen next that we're not really living in this particular moment now. Um, And that's true, I think, in life. And it's true in storytelling, you know. Um, And what is it like? Honestly, two of the things that I quote the most 
like the most when I'm talking about anything are both from Joss Whedon. And I find it really irritating. Although one of them is, is Tim Minear <laughs> on a Joss Whedon show. So fine. But one of them is from the Angel series, um, like the Buffy um, spinoff Angel, where we have Angel saying, if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do. Again, that was written mm-hmm. by Tim Minear, mm-hmm. um, but it was on a Joss Whedon show. And then, of course, like from Age of Ultron, right? A thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. Yeah, you know, yeah. a thing is beautiful because it exists in this moment, and it's beautiful. And and learning to exist in this now and be in this now, and even though you know what's going to happen, um, that there are things in the now that are worth enjoying and appreciating. I think like is really really true in storytelling, and I kind of hope that that is as we become as a culture much more story savvy because we are mm-hmm. consuming so much more content i hope that that is somewhere that we eventually get to to where mm. people are not trying to preserve the twist at all costs in their storytelling because it really is not the essential experience of any story is is what we don't know about how it's going to work out mm-hmm. um But the other thing that I saw here uh, that I thought was really interesting um, are the the trauma narratives and the duality of self. Um, Having been through, you know, some some trauma in my life, I can say that when you're living through an extracted and prolonged trauma like Bucky is as the Winter Soldier, Mm -hmm. um, that you do. I mean, at least my experience, you do split into two selves. There's the one that knows what's going on. And that is clear on everything. And then there's the one that survives, right? And the one mm-hmm. that survives will actively suppress the one that knows, you know? And um, that's how the surviving the trauma, happens in the moment. That's like that that's is literally the, the method. Yes. Yeah. That, exactly it. Exactly it. And then once you're freed from that, Right. Once you don't have to suppress it in order to survive, there is this process of reintegration Mm -hmm. that is wildly painful. It is so difficult. And I would say, like, out of all the things that were really, really hard with that experience, like that may have been one of the most difficult things for me to go Mm -hmm. through was to realize that I myself had had participated to a certain degree because I couldn't do anything because I wouldn't allow yeah. myself to do anything because I wouldn't allow myself to recognize what was happening. And as I see Bucky, this moment of Bucky collapsing to the ground as he goes through this reintegration, as he realizes who he was, even though part of him knew, part of him went back to New York, part of him was reaching for this all along. You know, mm-hmm. the part of him that yeah. knew was always in there. Um But that moment was so valuable because walking a character through the path of reintegration shows a potential path to readers who are in a similar emotional state of being split or early in that process. And again, like this is what I think is, is so incredibly valuable about fiction and about these stories is that you torment these characters so that you can walk them through that healing process, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that a lot of times that's a lot of what we go to fiction for. I mean, honestly, like one of the things that I teach writers is that you have to know how to torment your characters. Do not pull your punches. Do not make life easier for them. Make it harder and harder and harder and harder until they learn a goddamn thing, you know? Um, And I mean, that's something that you need to do in fiction because I think that's what we need in fiction. We need fiction to help us walk through these things that sometimes in our lives are are too difficult, too complex, too much, you know? Mm -hmm, And when you mm -hmm. look at it through one lens, you know, of Bucky reintegrating into himself, you can handle that. 
you know, through yeah, Bucky. Yeah. And Bucky becomes um, becomes a vessel for, for healing, which I think is amazing. And I love that we see this in, you know, in a comic book. I, yeah. It drives me crazy how comic books are so often dismissed as a form of narrative and a form of art and all of that um when the reality is it's it's some of the most um sophisticated and mm -hmm. powerful storytelling yeah. um that i've seen i think it's just absolutely incredible um and so i would like to just like put my hands together for this fucking <laughs> shit because oh my god that was an amazing moment a, a thing that you said that stuck with me a lot is that uh, fiction's not about how it is. It's about how it feels. Yes. And having gone through my own very, very different uh, mental health struggles, but like every time you sort of hit a new realization or a new breakthrough, it's like, it's a shade of, yeah. you know, um, if Bucky's reintegration is that turned up to 11, you're having yeah. those at twos and threes or more, but you know, like a, a lot but it's a process, right? It takes time. And experiencing that, having the ability to experience that in fiction in a moment, right, is yeah. is really valuable because you're going to get on the other side of yours and be like, yes, mine were spread out, but it was the same feeling. And mm -hmm. we can sort of get that um, that concentration, like that extract, that essentialness that's just like rendered down to one two-page spread, that I can mm -hmm. come back to years later and be like, yep, that's exactly how it felt, even though it took me five years instead of five seconds or, yes. or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, really, really powerful stuff. And it's worth saying, obviously, not every comic book is aspiring to be as well put together <laughs> as this one. They aren't all made like this. But really, the ones that we keep talking about are. I mean, there's something else more right. to it, you know, even if it's a even if it's a character. Mm -hmm. um, it's not one specific story. It's kind of the feel of the character because it's what has kind of accreted around them, you know, over, yes. over time. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, uh, it's, I would say it's really powerful in any fiction, obviously. I mean, we, we've all uh, growing up had our like old yeller bridge to Terabithia moment where we were suddenly, you know, experiencing all the feelings that we'd never had to experience before. But what I appreciate about it in these extremely genre spaces is, Oh, they Trojan horse that shit. Like here we are having a <laughs> espionage thriller, you mm -hmm. know, uh, and then right in the middle of that, let's have a moment where we can all reflect on our mental health struggles. How, how yeah. dare you bastards? Just <laughs> the audacity of folding both of those things together. Like it's completely normal and a thing I should expect. Honestly. All right, dear listeners, we have reached everybody's favorite part of the podcast, the favorite part of the story, which we break down into both art and story here on In the Gutter, not because they are necessarily separate, but because we're not sure of a better way to do it, because there are impactful <laughs> visual moments that are different than the impactful narrative moments, mm -hmm. even though they all work together. Uh, it's a crystalline structure, really. This has been your science nerd moment. Lonnie... Cut all yes. of that. Cut all of the science nerd. All that's out. Jack, please. That no, thought... Jack, leave it in. God Jack, damn it. It felt it like it adorable. was going someplace and it wasn't. All right. Um... <laughs> so we're going to lead with our favorite uh -huh. page of art. Lonnie, mm -hmm. tell me about your favorite pieces of visual entertainment in this issue. 
Yes, I, I had a tough time choosing between two. I, I would say the one that won out eventually was the double page spread with Bucky falling to his knees, remembering who he is. We see all these memories, you yeah. know, like imposed on the page. And then he's just in the center, crumbled to the floor. Like that is amazing. And I absolutely love that. But the close second is the bookended art of Lucan's face superimposed over the Red Skulls. Like, it is a great reveal. Such a fabulous callback to earlier in the Mm -hmm. series. I loved it. How about you? What did you think? What was your favorite art? Okay. It's legitimately exactly the same, but my number one (laughs) and number two spot are flipped. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I really love the bookend with Mm -hmm. Lucan, the reveal of Red Skull and Lucan's head. The bookend with the first issue a year and a third ago, you know, forever mm-hmm. ago, uh, mm-hmm. that, that doubling of imagery and all that that could mean. And that is, and that everything just got worse for our heroes and for yeah. Lucan in that mm-hmm. realization. Now it's been that way. Cause that's the secondary revelation. Oh, this yeah. is, this just got worse. Oh no shit. This has actually already been worse is just really, <laughs> really good. Yeah. But that sort of montage double page spread of those memories and that they are just like pressing in on mm-hmm. Bucky, on the Winter Soldier in that moment. And that they are a mix of both Karpov's fuckery and yeah. the supposedly good memories with Cap. Yes. It's all of it mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. forced into his skull and uh, and he can't figure out how to shuffle those cards together yet. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the same. I just uh, liked one a little bit more than the than the other, <laughs> and you liked the other one a little more than the other. <laughs> it was a tough call. I'm telling you, it was really hard. Um, all right. So, what's your favorite story moment? Okay, it's also kind of a visual, but I feel like it mm-hmm. it it works better here because it calls backwards and forwards, like to other things. So, yes. the you have two pages that are very close to one another in mm-hmm. in here, and one of them is. Bucky head and hands at Camp Lahai, you know, trying to figure out what he does next, you know, with that yeah. last memory of becoming Cap's partner. And I guess in a way that's supposed to be a last good memory. It's like the last time he felt good about the horrible mm-hmm. shit he was going to have to do the rest yeah. of the time. I, I'm reading in there a little bit, but that's what it says to me. And it harkens back to Cap at the end of the issue where he read the file, head and hands. Yeah. Tony. I can't help you on this one. Head and hands. Lucan, mm-hmm. I've nearly killed my best friend. Head and hands. Like all of these just despairing moments have, there've really been a lot of them with yeah. very similar imagery. The the main person in shadow, you know, just, yeah. just like that. And then you turn just a couple of pages later and you have Lucan staring out that piece of art that we both enjoyed so much, you know, realizing that's Red Skull. And this juxtaposition there of Bucky with everybody, you, but backward and then forward, it's a very different co- uh, comparison. Here are two men struggling with the monsters that are in their heads. And the same guy, to a certain extent, put those monsters in their heads. Yeah. Like Lucan is who he is because of Karpov. And uh-huh. Bucky is the was the Winter Soldier for so long because of Karpov. But here, mm-hmm. but then everything after that, totally out of their control really, Mm -hmm. you know, but they're both struggling with these, you know, monstrous versions of themselves. Loved it. So much going on. Again, it's mostly visual, but it still feels like it has all this like narrative weight because of the call backwards and call forwards. What about yourself? Um, you know, 
Oddly, I think my favorite part of this is the reunion that is promised. Uh-huh. Is the like the that. moment that Cap and Bucky are actually going to uh, reunite, um, you know, find each other again, um, and and connect. You know, I mean, like we had that moment. No one would understand you if it wasn't for me. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and the idea that that with everything that both Cap and Bucky have lost, there is something in each other that can heal some of that loss that they both hold you know when there is and this happens a lot like when animals die you know like an animal dies and you're like this animal has been a witness to my life for this entire 14 15 years you know um and that to lose that witness to your life is is so hard and then the idea of they've they've already lost this in each other but to get that back is such an incredibly precious thing. And so there's something about the promise of what will come next, you know, um, that I think is actually like my my favorite part. I want to see Cap and Bucky meet again. And I'm very yeah. much looking forward to reading that comic. Oh, I love that. I mean, the idea that the the best part of the culmination of the story could be the promise and also threat of yeah. the future it, mm-hmm. to make you come back. I don't know if you can say a nicer thing about a finale honestly yeah really i mean honestly it's the thing that makes you want to come want to come back to it and keep reading um all right everyone that is it for season two of in the gutter joshua and i are both working on our novels this year as part of my year of writing magically workshop if you're interested in learning more go to yearofwritingmagically.com and sign up to be notified when applications open again for next year so in the gutter is going to be on hiatus for a little while to open up that bandwidth for these other creative projects follow chipperish media on your various media social to be the first to know when in the gutter is coming back until then bucky's a survivor he's out there somewhere i know it thanks for listening to in the gutter with joshua Anru and lonnie diane rich if you enjoyed this podcast please consider talking about it with your friends leaving a review somewhere or supporting chipperish media patreon.com slash chipperish